Welcome to Policed in Ireland, the podcast that seeks to capture the experiences people have with the police. I'm Dr. Vicky Conway and I'm passionate about listening to people from all different walks of life about how they experience our police on Garda Síochána. If you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe or head to patreon.com, find Tortoise Shack and support us in bringing all of this content to you. The guards drove around, they were watching this and they did nothing. And I rang the guards and I said, he has just threatened you. He has just driven after me. There were threats to kill. And I was told that because of the court order, he had every right to be there. So even though violence had broken out, there was threats of violence, threats to kill. Nothing was done. In this episode, we are talking about domestic violence, which will, out of necessity, include details of sexual, psychological and physical violence. If you're affected by these issues or concerned for a loved one, there are plenty of organisations you can contact and we'll provide details of those at the end. We are releasing this episode now because between Christmas and COVID, this is an exceptionally dangerous and difficult time for people in abusive relationships. And we want our listeners to be aware of the nuance as best as we can contribute. This was a topic I wanted to cover from the earliest thoughts about this podcast. I contacted Safe Ireland and worked with them to think about how we could approach this. I learned a great deal in the process. Speaking out about these experiences is, for many, not wise action. For those who have had children with their abuser, they will quite possibly be in legal battles with their abuser as regards custody until their children are over 18. Discussing their experiences in such a forum could be used against them in legal proceedings. For those still in a relationship with their abuser for whatever reason, it's also not safe. We discussed whether someone might be willing to provide their story and we could have an actor read it, but agreed that that could potentially be harmful in that someone might feel that their inability to speak in their own voice was akin to silencing, which would be the exact opposite of what we're trying to achieve. If anything, all that we learned made us more determined in this space, because if structures inhibit the sharing of experiences, there are two problems. Firstly, it's harder for those in wider society to appreciate and understand the complexity of the issues involved. And secondly, victims will feel silenced and disempowered in a time when they need to regain power and control over their lives. So the wonderful people at Save Ireland reflected and considered and then put me in touch with Mary. Mary is a member of CICI, a survivor participation project led by survivors of intimate abuse in Ireland. CICI's mission is to support women to become leaders and be recognised as experts by experience. They aim to influence policy, social, legal and political reform. I hope in the context of what I've just said, you'll appreciate the bravery she displays in sharing her experiences of the police in the context of domestic violence on this podcast. She starts by telling us about the nature of the relationship in question. So I guess from the outset, uh, my first instinct was to stay away. Um, when uh, he first asked me out, I I just thought, no, that's not, it, it's, it just didn't feel right. Um, and it was many months later 
uh, and I was in probably a, a more vulnerable position due to other kind of background circumstances. Um, and I found myself not being able to say no. So I, uh, I agreed to go out with him. And early on, I could see control and I could also see a lot of attentiveness, um, you know, arriving outside my place of work with red roses after, you know, one one night out. Um, looking back, it's cringeworthy, but um, that's the way it was. And there were displays of aggression early on as well, aimed at other people that happened in front of me. Um, you know, in a in a a busy kind of restaurant, um, displays of aggression and people sitting, a man sitting at a table behind us, um, and I learned to feel responsible in some way, I guess, for his temper. Um, some people did warn me about him, and I kind of was very focused on, oh, he deserves a chance, um, and when things did go wrong between us, there was intercession on his behalf by family members. Um, so it was full on from the very beginning. So uh, we were together for six months in the beginning and then we broke up after a, a violent assault and I managed to completely stay out of the relationship for a year. Um, but because we were in close circles, um, I, I, I got back involved. Um, and that was on and off then for another couple of years. Um, I became pregnant and uh, we broke up. Uh, we got back together. We broke up. Um, I had the baby and it was uh, a difficult um, cesarean. He came to stay with me. And when um, our baby was five weeks old, uh, he left and the difficulty went on for um, another six months when there was, uh, I was raped and um, that's when the relationship um, ended. However, many, many years later, because we have a child, um, unfortunately, there's still reason for contact. So it's a very difficult situation. Um, from start to finish, um, it was, you know, in and around four and a half years in total. But there were big periods of breakup in between and uncertainty. Um, and that one year when there was no contact in the middle. We have probably most of us been in an on again, off again relationship at some point where you hope that the things that you love about the other person will shine through and win out. For too many people, though, the thing that you are hoping will be won over is a violent and controlling part of the abuser. We're not here to dissect Mary's relationship. We are talking today about the Garda response. And over the last two decades, the Garda have become an almost everyday feature of Mary's life. This is so different to anything we've talked about on the podcast before. In the extensive preparation we did for this podcast, Mary identified a number of key moments and events which give us an insight into Garda behaviour in this space. What has worked, what hasn't worked. It's only a snapshot of the entirety of the relationship, but we start with the first violence she encountered. So the, the first uh, serious, very serious assault um, happened after we broke up. 
and I was at home and he came to my home. Um, I was in fear um, due to the way things had been when we broke up and I there was no way I was going to let him inside the house. Um, and he had a, a trailer attached to a car. He was driving a friend's car and um, he pulled out a, a swing out of the back, you know, because I was watching to see what, well, you know, what's he doing out there? Um, and he, he was in a really disheveled state. Um, and he, he had this swing. He was trying to hang it from a branch from a tree outside as this great romantic gesture of reconciliation. And he was kind of, uh, he had come to the door and he told me he was in a heap as well. Um, and I, I brought him out some food and I came back inside and uh, and I was watching. I also needed to leave to go to work. I was really under time pressure um, and I, I didn't actually want him there. And I was trying to manage the situation. Um, and he fixed up the swing and sat on it. And it broke and he fell on the ground um, and I, I smiled um, I giggled a bit um, and he changed like that. Um, the gesture was gone. He started to uh, pack stuff up. I said I had to go um, and I waited inside for him to get things into the into the car and to leave and uh, I got into my car then as he had driven up the driveway. I was living in a very remote place and uh, I, I got into my car to, to go after him and he stopped and I was I was boxed in and um, I got frustrated. I beat the horn a couple of times and there was a, an empty plastic water bottle in the car and I, I stood out and I threw it at him in frustration um, in that general direction. Um, and then he got out of the car um, and he's a big guy, very big, with a hammer and he started to walk back at me um, and it was one of those slow motion moments, you know, where it's the, f the fight, flight, freeze um, and I, I, it was like an instinct as well. He had always been very jealous of things. Um, I had a nice car and he was kind of jealous of it and it was like I knew he was going to do damage and I got out to try and stop him and he came at me um, and he, he he overpowered me. Um, I was standing kind of just at the bonnet at the front of my car and he threw me to the ground and he raised the hammer um, and then he turned and he put the hammer down into the bonnet of my car. Um, very, in a very controlled way. Um, and then he turned around and he walked away, ignoring me. Um, you know, I, I, I was, I'm not sure if I was screaming out loud or if I was screaming inside my head. Um, but I was, I was so upset. And he got into the car and then he drove away. And uh, I don't know now, um, I was trying to think of this. Um, if I left and called the guards and came back or if I stayed and called the guards um, but a while later, the guards came and they took a statement from me um, at my house. Um, it was quite, uh, quite a detailed statement. And I brought the guard out to show him where it had happened, you know, where my car had been. And um, he actually came back.
while the guard was there and I was showing showing everything to the guard and we watched as he got out and he bent down to pick up something um, and it was his wallet. Um, so he had dropped his wallet there earlier and uh, the guard went up to talk to him um, and he left. And that was in August 2004. And I was asked to be a witness. He was being prosecuted for aggravated assault. Um, and that was in the January of 2005. And um, in the meantime, I had been persuaded that I would ruin his life if I went ahead with and gave evidence um, because of the, the nature of the career he wanted to pursue a charge or a, a prosecution for assault um, would prevent him from doing the work that he wanted to do. So I... So you were persuaded by his family? By his family, yeah. Um, and some mutual acquaintances. And as I said, we had reason to be in similar circles. Um, and I very much felt the pressure that it... Not that what he had done was destructive of my spirit and my well-being and my sense of safety in the world, but that my response to what he had done would be detrimental to the outcome for his life. And um, unfortunately, I think society for a long time, um, I placed a greater responsibility on the outcome for him than the consequences for me. Um, and I didn't give, I went to court and I stood up in court and I said that I wasn't going to give evidence. And how had the guards been on this occasion? The guards were very supportive. Um, there wasn't much, there wasn't much communication. Um, I mean, they took a statement and they took it very seriously and they went ahead with the prosecution. So in that sense, um, I think because we were, you know, we didn't live together. Um, it wasn't a long-term relationship. The violence happened early on and I reported. So the guards did take me seriously. However, as the years went on and the incidents of violence and my level of fear escalated, uh, and I still to this day, I will look back on the fact that I didn't give evidence then and see it as a reason why the guards would not deal with other situations as effectively. Perhaps unusually, Mary reported violence as soon as it occurred. Often there are more than a dozen incidents before that happens. And there was, perhaps unusually, a prosecution initiated. But what's important here is that Mary feels that because she didn't follow through, this was used against her, that her actions were judged, that she was judged, that it was about her and not him. This was particularly problematic because, as always happens, the violence intensified. I stayed out of the relationship then for a year and um, after getting back involved, it was, you know, the relationship was on off um, and I became pregnant. Um, that was, a, you know, it was a difficult pregnancy in, this, in, in, in the context of things were on off. Um, I had some difficult background family circumstances that arose as well, which meant that um, I was quite isolated, um, quite isolated with a young baby. Um, and even though I might have had a difficult relationship with my stepdad um, from very early on in the relationship, this man, um, 
displayed aggression and threats of intimidation and fear towards my stepdad, you know. So anyone who m may have been uh, a had a protective role in my life um, was was intimidated. Um, and uh, so when I, our, our baby was um, six months old, it was just coming up to um, Christmas and uh, he'd been quite sick. He had a chest infection and I had been at home isolated with young sick baby and very conscious that Christmas was coming up and, the, you know, I needed to get out and do shopping and, and all of that. And I asked him, could he come over to where I lived um, and mind our son because he was he was sick and I couldn't leave him. Um, and he did. He said he had to come over the night before because he had been working um, and he just the way that it suited him was to come over the night before. And I had friends there and uh, and they left and um, he um, he slept in the spare room. And he came in early in the morning. Um, about half seven in the morning uh, was baby's kind of first feed of the morning and I had uh, fed baby and he came in and I, 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 I put baby back in the cot and um, he was trying to, um, you know, get me to sleep with him and, you know, I didn't want to and I was upset. He was also trying to persuade me to go to uh, the town that he was from for Christmas um, and bring and bring our baby. Um, and, you know, our relationship wasn't on at the time. Um, so I, I really felt I was in a very difficult situation. And he he told me um, how much he hated me. And he told me that he would um, kill me if he thought that he could get away with it. And not long after that, he climbed on top of me and he pinned me to the bed. Um, and I tried to wrestle him off with my knees, um, you know, but he's, he's much bigger than me, very strong. Um, and he had either of my, you know, my, my, my arms above the elbow held down um, and he forced himself in between my legs and, uh, and he raped me. Um, and I was, I, I went through that moment of, okay, this is happening. Um, and if I scream and I go crazy right now, baby will wake up, but baby was asleep. And, um, and then I thought, I'll help him finish. So I went from fighting to um, actually um, doing things that I had learned over the years would help him to finish faster. Um, and he finished and he climbed off me and uh, he walked away into uh, the bathroom. Um, and then this feeling of absolute frustration around this is going to destroy baby's first Christmas. Uh, my family are coming. I had arranged to go shopping with my uh, father that morning. I was to meet him. Um, and uh, I, I, I just, I, I wanted the rape not to have happened so that I could, I was, I was so upset that it had interfered with everything and that he had interfered with everything. Um, and I tried to to go 
and 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 ring someone and to um to to keep going and um I went out to my car and he came out after me and uh he took the uh, or he tried to take the the baby seat from the back of the car and he said that he was taking um taking our son and um I was in this absolute state of panic and I, I, I started to to drive. He didn't get the, the seat and I started to drive and um, I rang my father and my father said, you know, you need to just go straight back and go into the house. And I was so scared and he said, call, you know, call the guards. And actually the, the, a private number started ringing me while I was on the phone and it was the guards. And he had rang the guards and he had told the guards that I had abandoned my son with him. And I said to the guards, you know, if you want to know what happened, I'll tell you what happened. And I told them what had happened that morning. And they asked me if I wanted the guards to come around. Um, and I said no. Um, and she suggested I get in touch with the refuge as well. Um, and then I went back and I went inside and he had rang his sister and he told his sister that I was having some sort of a breakdown, that I was mental. And he had taken money from um, my room and he'd called himself a taxi and he left. Um, our son was sitting in the high chair uh, with, with some food in front of him and um, the guards arrived and... Um, I rang my friend as well. My friend came up with her son and the guards took a preliminary statement from me. They asked me what happened. They took some notes and then they said that they would need to get a detective up to interview me. And I, I'm not sure exactly. I know it was about half seven in the morning when the rape happened and it was half ten at night that evening when guards took me in a squad car with sirens on uh, in the bus lane into the sexual assault trauma unit in the rotunda and someone from the rape crisis centre was there to meet me. It was half one in the morning when the consultant came in to um, to take swabs and to to gather evidence um, and if you roll back it was probably around tea time that the detective was at my kitchen table making me go through my story of what happened over and over until he was convinced that the bar had been met to sanction me going into the sexual assault trauma unit. Um, and after that, days after that, um, I went in to make a statement in Shankill Garda Station and um, there was nobody with me and when I saw the statement years later there wasn't much in it. Um, there wasn't much really in the statement. There's so many details I remember still to this day and that rape happened um, in 2000, December 22nd, 2007. Um, and none of them are in that statement. 
none of those really poignant details that put me in that traumatic response to a horrific crime and the details that place me there aren't aren't in it. Um, Despite the fact that you had told that to at least three different guardy. Yes, yes, yes. And I've never seen the statement that I gave to that detective. He wasn't involved in the case. It was literally just to interview me to see if I warranted being brought into the sexual assault trauma unit. Um, and he got to me. I remember my um, I remember my laptop. Uh, I remember looking at it. And emails had been sent to me in huge, bold letters. I did not rape you. You are lying. I am not a rapist. Um, and uh, was he prosecuted for the rape? He wasn't prosecuted. He was um, he was arrested and he was interviewed. And I was too scared and too overwhelmed. Um, I knew I had, you know, I, I had all of that trauma. I was on my own with a young baby. I knew his form. Um, he would turn up outside my door. He was crying on my doorstep, you know, at, at eight o'clock in the morning, banging on the door. And there had been years and years of this pattern of um, abusive behaviour and then the forcing me to um, acknowledge him, forcing me to talk to him, forcing me into situations where I felt like um, it was better for me to manage his behaviour because there was nobody stopping him. Um, so no, he wasn't prosecuted, nor could I get any sort of a protection order or a safety order or a barring order because we never lived together. And at that time, the domestic violence legislation didn't cover us. Um, it was only when our son was, um, he was eight, that I could actually get protective orders. And this happened when our son was six months old. Um, so there was many more years uh, of me having to protect myself from him in the best way I knew how. And, you know, that's managing it. Mary says a key thing here, which is that she was protecting herself. I spoke to Don Hennessy, who has been a counsellor in this area for numerous decades and who has written three books on the topic. How He Gets in Her Head, Steps to Freedom and How He Wins. He's also been a huge support to Mary. He spoke about the Garda role in terms of protection. Well, my experience over the last 30 years, Vicky, has been that it doesn't really happen. That um, what the Garda police, if they police anything, is breaches of court orders. But these are very specific. And in, in fact, they are a an instruction from a judge and if the instruction from the judge is disobeyed then the guardie will operate on behalf of the judge but actually the victim is lost in all of what goes on she has no voice she never has a voice and yet she is relied upon to do the prosecuting so that at the beginning when the the domestic violence issue arrives in court 
she is the prosecutor and she must have all the evidence and she must in order to get an order and and that is totally in 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 the wrong order if you like that we need to start from the beginning we need to get the legal uh, activity defined in a way which in some ways is i suppose mainly the responsibility of the guardy but the guardy in ireland are the protectors of the peace that's what their role is and what they do is they expect the woman to protect her own peace to actually do this job herself and they don't uh, intervene at any level until there is a court protection order in place and even then most of my clients find that it's not really working so what is it that you think victims need from the police? Well, what I think is they need protection. That's the word I use. Whereas even no later than last night, I saw an appeal by one of the higher Gardaí on TV asking women to come and get the support of the Gardaí. That's a different thing altogether. Support is one thing. Support is lovely to have but actually the legal process should be a process of protection rather than support. And what would protection look like? Well, that's an interesting question. About 1996, um, there was a massive report done by a lady called Edna Fitzgerald uh, on, on behalf of the government, and they suggested that protection, the outline of it, would be that there would be a huge interagency collaboration between all the statutory and voluntary organizations so that the violence and abuse would stop. And that's, it hasn't been developed, it's been ignored. And it's still the case today that everything is put back on the, the onus is put back on the victim. She needs to do A, B and C so that the violence will stop. And that's where it falls down. And so the goal of protection should be to stop violence. If we find out that somebody is being abused as a community, we're obliged to see that that doesn't happen again. That That's the position of stopping. That's the position of protecting. And when it is an intimate relationship, we know the next victim and we know the next perpetrator because it's a very repetitive crime. And uh, so unless we intervene in a way that stops it, it can be almost certain it will happen again. And what types of interventions are required to stop it? Well, I, I think the, the first thing is that, and that we need to do is we need to look at the problem. We spend most of our time and it's driven mostly by uh, women's organisations, but everybody looks at the woman. What can we do for her? How can we help her? What what resources do we need? And the man is out of the picture. And the first thing we need to do is we need to diagnose him and we need to analyse what drives him and what he's about. And until we know what the problem is, it's like trying to address, I say it very rudely, and I say it's like having bowel cancer and that we spend all our time actually dealing with pain and bleeding and difficulties in the bowel area without actually taking out the tumour and looking at it. Mm. And that's what we need to do. But if you go anywhere, people will tell you, even women in organisations, we don't want to think about men. We don't want to look at them even. But until we as a population, both men and women, 
begin to look at the men who are causing this problem, we won't find a solution. What Mary continues to describe is the ongoing everyday nature of the violence beyond their romantic relationship. This is perhaps something we don't think about enough, that leaving the relationship is not the end and that protection could be required on a long-term basis. The courts ordered her access to the child, so every handover was a fearful time. As the relationship progressed um, into uh, a very new context, which was that there was absolutely no uh, romantic, physical or even um, uh, cooperative relationship between us. However, um, we have a child in common and um, I had done everything I could to not stop that relationship because it was to- I was told I would have to facilitate that father-child relationship. Yeah. However, assaults continued. Um, You know, he would drive after me sometimes. Um, I remember doing a handover outside a Garda station and being spat all over, you know, through the open car window and going into the Garda station and reporting what had happened. The same Garda station where I had reported the rape and being told that there was nothing that they could do. There was no evidence and that to just to just go away and get on with it. Um, and he drove after me from the Garda station. He followed me home um, and I, I, I rang the station. I was afraid of being on the phone um, while driving, um, you know, breaking the law. Um, and at the same time, there was a man who had raped me, uh, threatened me, just assaulted me, um, driving behind me and nothing was being done. Um, so I, I began to ask for Garda presence at handover. Um, I was very careful when um, access orders were being made that um, they would happen in a public place um, where there was uh, cameras, um, where uh, it was you know out in the open and there was the least likelihood of me being assaulted. Um, however, at one of those handovers, which was at the Stillorgan Bowling Alley, um, I was assaulted and the following handover I wrote, I had written a letter to the guards and to the, you know, the superintendent and asked that there be a uh, guards present at the handover. Um, I also rang to say I was on my way and that I was in fear and if the guards could please be in the area Um, and the guards were there. Um, I wouldn't go over to, um, I wouldn't go over to collect our, our, our son and he had said that he would never hand over to anyone else but me. It always had to be me. He insisted that it was me. Um, and my boyfriend went over and uh, was there to, 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 to collect our son and uh, he went crazy. Um, he started shouting and roaring at the guards. He asked, you know, they had no business being there. Um, he got very um, uh, threatening um, and was, you know, cursing and swearing at the guard and um, she did nothing. Um, in the middle of all of this, um, my boyfriend, you know, picked up my son and came back across the road to where I was um, and the guards spoke to um, my son's father for a while. I could see this across the road and then he got into his car and the guards drove off and he drove 
um, at us. He drove across the road and he drove um, revving the car. Um, I was on foot carrying my son and uh, the guards drove around. They were watching this and they did nothing. And I, I rang the guards and I said, you know, he has just threatened you. He has just driven after me. There were threats to kill. Um, he was making gun gestures out the window at myself and uh, my boyfriend in the presence of um, our son. And I was told that because of the court order, he had every right to be there. Um, and that there was nothing that the guards could do to interfere with a civil court order. He had every right to be there. So even though violence had broken out, there was threats of violence, threats to kill. Um, I was absolutely terrified. Nothing was done. Um, and okay. subsequent to that, my boyfriend made a complaint. He rang the station and he made a complaint about threats to kill. And my son's father was arrested and interviewed for that. Charges didn't follow. The guards were interviewed and they said that they did everything that they could to handle the situation as well as possible. And violence continued and escalated for years to come. When she made the complaint herself, nothing happened. But when her partner made the same complaint, her ex was arrested. This was an issue which affected the entire family, including, of course, her son. There's also been, um, you know, times when, a time when you know, he came to the house and tried to um, take uh, take my son from the house um, when he didn't want to go on access. That was recently enough. That was in March of 2018. And there were ongoing um, family law matters in the background and access would take place. The handover for access was managed through the school, whereby from a Friday um, after school to a Monday morning um, back to the school. Which was difficult because, um, you know, he lived four hours away. So to manage his levels of fear himself, um, my son had stopped going to school on days when he thought his father would be there to collect him um, because he had said he didn't want to go and there were family law proceedings going on in the background addressing that. And he hadn't gone into school and next thing uh, my husband was at home and there was banging on the door, pounding on the door and um, my husband asked uh, my son to go into the back room of the, of, of the house and he rang the guards. Um, my son's father had also rang the guards and I was in a meeting and when I came out from the meeting, I was about a half an hour away, I got a, a call to say what was going on. Um, and I went into the guard station and I explained what was happening and I was told that there was a car on the way there and the car would get there when it got there. Um, when I came back, um, I was told, and my, my husband had already been told, that uh, there was a court order and that access was to take place. Um, and, you know, my husband said he found the guards were very kind of intimidating towards him. 
and it was like he was the problem preventing this access from taking place. Um, the order was an old order and um, it was only after I sat into the car and explained to the guards what was actually happening, what was going on with the family court um, and that, um, you know, my son didn't want to go and that everyone was aware of this. My son was asked to go out in the guard of presence and walk up to his father with the guards and tell him that he didn't want to go with him. Um, and what age, what age was your son at this point? Um, he was 10. I went out as well and I was there. And while the guards were present, his father started telling him that I was a liar, um, that what was going on in court wasn't true, that the social workers had lied to him. Um, so in that moment, you know, there was law being broken in the context of bullying and intimidation of a child um, and nothing was done. They, they, they stood, they observed, they didn't force him to go, but they could have intervened and they could have intervened to a level that had what happened been fully documented, it could have provided the court with clarity when it comes to protection or the guards could have protected him you know, rather than saying, you need to go into court, you need to make a fresh application yourself. There was another incident. After that, I went and I did try to get uh, a protection order. And I was told that because the family law hearings um, were going on uh, in the circuit court at the time, that the district court could not provide a protective order because it didn't have jurisdiction. So there was there was no protective measures that could be put in place. Clearly, the protection of victims is not just an issue for the guards, and there are a wealth of other agencies and bodies like Tusla and the courts that have a role to play. But here we're staying focused to the policing of domestic violence and the role that guards can play. Subsequently, a couple of months later, he showed up again with the same court order outside the school, um, at the school fate, and um, wanted to take um, wanted to take our son and he hadn't seen him since. He hadn't seen him properly for nearly six months at this stage. And he showed up outside the school and um, the sergeant responded to that call that I made. The principal was incredible because he knew the background to the situation. But still, what happened on the day was not documented. Um, my son hit up a tree. His friends surrounded the tree to protect him. He was terrified. There was, he could see his father arguing with the sergeant with the court order in his hand, um, the other side of the school wall. Um, and after a considerable amount of time, which may be 15 minutes or so, he left. He left. And the, he had been there for a while though beforehand. Um, and the sergeant made sure he left and he drove after him while he left the area. Um, he rang me afterwards to see if I was okay. He rang to check that um, our son was okay. Um, he, he followed up. Um, and I remember going in afterwards to make a statement 
and to ask, why can we not get protection? Why can he not be arrested for doing these things? Um, and he told me he just didn't have the powers to do it. And he said he believed me and that everything that was happening was wrong. He knew what we had been through as a family. He could see the history, but there was nothing that he could do to intervene. Mary has had more dealings with the Gardaí than anyone would ever want to have. And we can hear the good and the bad in that. The care and attention shown on that occasion clearly mattered. But what really strikes me is how the guards are part of her everyday life. Even what should be happy moments like holidays have become policing matters. Yes, yeah, so holidays has been always been a nightmare. Um, and I was I was reflecting on this on a time when I, I I had given notice to say that I would be on holidays and offered alternative access. However, um, that wasn't acceptable to him. He wanted the days, he wanted them to be there. And at one time, access handover was happening at my elderly aunt's house. She facilitated access. And he showed up on her doorstep when I was on holidays, banging on her door, demanding his son. Um, she came out and said, you know, he's not here. And um, I rang the guards and they said that there was nothing they could do because technically in the court order, he had a right to be there to collect him. Um, years later, the same problems. Um, I go on holidays. I give notice that um, our son won't be available for access and offer alternative dates for that access to be made up. Um, that's not accepted. Um, I've had interaction with the guards many times over the over over the years, and um, I was able to make contact with um, a detective who would be in the protective services unit um, as it was setting up. And he talked me through what I needed to do. I explained my fears about being held up at passport control. Um, he made contact. He got back to me, and he said, "It's okay. You're fine to travel. You know, every, you know." It, Go ahead, you've done everything you can. Um, and in the space of 10 days, while I was um, on a sun holiday uh, with my husband and my three children, three different Garda stations contacted me following up a report of child abduction. Two of those stations also contacted my husband following up a report of child abduction. It absolutely... Uh, destroyed the holiday. Um, when I came back, there was notice that he was going to attempt to have me prosecuted for child abduction um, to my solicitor. Um, I explained what was happening in uh, one station. They said they were aware, the local station, but they had to follow up because it was a report of child abduction. Um, and even though they were aware of the background, they had to follow it up. Um, and I had said, please talk to a superior guard. Um, is there nothing on the system to say that I was going away, that I had reported this? Um, and then a station where he lived, um, a guard rang me and she was quite aggressive that I had taken his child out of the country without his consent. So what I picked up on was... Um, somebody interpreting legislation in a way um, 
maybe without having the background training or without having had communication with my local station um, to see, surely it must be at the touch of a button that someone has rang in and said they will be away. Um, And most holidays have been like that. Um, And there has, would usually be um, a call from the guards. There are also instances where her ex has manipulated the guardie in ways which, if they'd been better structured, shouldn't have happened. Um, There was an access order in place which stated that I had to be given notice by a certain date if an optional second weekend of monthly access was to be taken up. Um, And I hadn't received notification of it. And then he turned up and, you know, our, our, our son wasn't there. I got a phone call from the guards saying I was in breach of an access order. I said very clearly that I wasn't in breach of an access order, that I had to receive notification and it hadn't been given. There was a, an email address that's filed with the courts and it's an email address that is the one that's always used for any correspondence relating to the courts or family law matters or, you know, any of that correspondence. And he sent an email, forwarded an email to the Garda station an email address that had my name in it, but is not my email address. And the guard said he did provide the email address. And I said, that's not my email address. And I said, surely, you know, I can show you the email address, the evidence that the email address that we use. And he said he wasn't getting involved, um, but he said it was up to me to sort this out with my child's father or else my child would be taken into care. Um, But the attitude towards me, it's that it's the mother's fault. The difficulties in this family situation are the mother's fault. Um, And that a child needs a father, no matter what type of a father, whether he's abusive or not, at all costs, that it's better for a child to have contact And I I see a lot of the time it's the same attitude in some guards that you have in the courts, you know. I specifically asked Mary, given her 15 years of interaction with the guards, what the most unhelpful behaviours she had seen from Gardaí were. I think one of the most difficult and frustrating things is as a victim of ongoing um, calculated, purposeful abuse with a long history that has been documented and recorded and reported to the guards, you know, where all the evidence is there. And when abuse is actually happening right in front of their eyes and they do nothing, it really does leave a victim of abuse feeling, what is the point? There is nobody going to stop him. And to be told in that moment when coercive control and threats of violence and intimidation is happening right in front of their eyes that you'll have to go to court yourself and get a protective order. And they don't understand the complexity of what's going on in the civil courts in relation to family law. And you go and try and get a protective order and the district court says the circuit court has jurisdiction and the circuit court is already dealing with it in a certain way 
And then legal advice is don't even think about going in front of that judge looking for that order right now or it'll really badly affect your family law outcome. There is no one who can help. So the idea that guards cannot intervene when threats of assault are happening or assault is actually happening or guards themselves are being verbally assaulted or they're being lied to or falsified documents are being shown to them and they say we can't intervene because it's a civil matter. That's just washing their hands of it. Um, now I'm not sure if it's policy or if it's training or if it's all of the above but when a woman who is in fear of her life is brave enough to stand up to her abuser and call the guards, regardless of what the consequences for her might be, they need to weigh in. They can't say, we can't pick sides here, because that's been said to me too. We can't pick sides here. And to be told that it's just their job to enforce the law. They don't make the law. But I think if they understood the law, they could apply it and enforce it an awful lot more effectively. There have been really positive developments of late. Mary mentioned earlier the protective services units within Angarda as of earlier this year, there is now such a unit in every division, and so they're called DPSUs. DPSUs are something of a revolution in the policing of domestic violence. Once fully operational, each unit will have 15 members, all of whom will have undertaken a two-week training course. This will include an inspector, two detective sergeants, ten detective guardie, and two administrative staff. The units focus on sexual violence, domestic violence, child protection and other related crimes. Part of the aim is to ensure the highest standard of investigation of these offences by officers who are professionally trained in the complexities and dynamics of these crimes. Having such dedicated staff should also lead to greater care and attention to victims as well as a speedier prosecution. Covid has altered this space dramatically too. The nature of lockdown has led to a 17% increase in calls to Gardaí concerning domestic violence between April and November. But we've also seen their response through the DPSUs and Operation Fuishev, which has seen callbacks to victims, a 13% increase in arrests and nearly 300 prosecutions directly resulting from these actions. Those numbers are still small in the context of over 20,000 calls, but it's certainly a move in the right direction. A further development has been the criminalisation of coercive control, which enables more focus on domestic violence as a crime rather than a civil or family issue. Don told me why prosecutions are so important. I think it's an essential part of it. I, I think we have, I suppose since the constitution was developed, initially we regarded women as chattels. The language may have changed, but the attitude hasn't and women are second-class citizens within the process of family law. What benefit would there be to treating it as a crime? It, essentially, it would be, um, it, it would allow the police and the other community services to actually intervene in a protective way. So if you see somebody who is being um, assaulted 
And if you know that that person is going to be assaulted again, as a community, we can take steps to actually prevent the second assault. Whereas in, in as a civil issue, it's ignored. The assault is actually very seldom documented. What is, um, I suppose, pursued is a way out of the family difficulties. How can we stop the family from breaking up or how can we work with the family so that the children aren't damaged by it? But we, we, we actually don't have a mechanism which identifies physical abuse certainly as crime. And even though there is a, a, a new piece of legislation around coercive control, uh, every guard that I've spoken to either doesn't know it's there at all or has no idea what the hell it means. And some of my clients have tried to make uh, prosecutions on this area and the guards have smiled at them and says, we've no idea what to do. So there's a huge amount to learn about these guys. We have ignored them up to now. We have um, focused on the victim and we have accepted her explanation for what is going on. When in reality, from my experience, the woman doesn't know what actually is going on because she has already been brainwashed and she cannot think straight. So when she talks to us, she actually speaks to us in the language of the abuser and she defines the problem in the language of the abuser. And so everybody gets sidetracked at that stage. Following the first conviction for coercive control by a jury in November of this year, Chief Superintendent Finbar Murphy made the following statement, which perhaps has evidence of the increasing guard of professionalisation in this space. To acknowledge the outcome of the court case today, it's the first case of coercive control in the state that has gone before a jury. I'm conscious that sentence hasn't been handed down and therefore I won't comment on the case, but I do want to take the opportunity to thank the guard investigation team, the DPP's office and the state solicitor's office. I want to thank the various support agencies, victim support, women's aid, who, and the medical profession who helped us bring this matter to fruition. In relation to the lady at the centre of this case, I want to commend her for her bravery and her courage in bringing this case and telling her story to the court in the manner that she did. She's a, a beacon of hope to a lot of people who find themselves in a similar situation. And it's something I think that they will draw a lot of courage themselves from watching her and from, knowing, from hearing her story. In relation to anybody who has found themselves to be in a similar situation, if you are the victim of coercive control, if you are the subject of abuse or you're the subject of assault, and whether you're in a, a gay relationship, a heterosexual relationship, whether you're married or whether you're in a partnership with somebody, whether you're young or old, you do not have to put up with this behavior. It's illegal, it's criminal. If you come to the Garda station and tell your story, you will receive a sympathetic hearing, but you will also receive a very professional service from us. And we will link you up with a number of other professional services that will help you through this process and give you back your life. And remember, none of this is your fault. This is the fault of the person committing the offenses against you. If you come to us and tell your story, we will guarantee you that we will give you full support and bring these matters before the courts. Mary also reflects on the best of what she's experienced. What's been most helpful over the years, and there's been many incidents, you know, that, that it's 17 years 
of Garda involvement in the context of that relationship. Um, and that relationship, which ended on, you know, the 22nd of December 2007, and here we are in 2020. Um, I can remember a guard coming to my door and saying, I'm worried about you just to let you know he has reported you for driving with bald tires and endangering his child's life. And we're worried for your safety because of that. That lets me know the guard in my community has my back. Um, that lets me know that it's safe to call and it's safe to report something. Um, when I was trying to get evidence to show in family court of criminal, of a criminal nature, um, but I didn't have the technical know-how, um, that guard sent another guard who did have technical know-how up to go through all of the abusive text messages, all of the threatening text messages, all of the weird, creepy text messages of a sexual nature um, and help me get them into a spreadsheet, you know, so I could produce them as evidence. Um, times when I knew that the local station was aware of my situation. Um, I remember my car broke down one night um, on my way home and I ended up having to leave it on the side of the road and walk the rest of the way home. And the guards rang me to see if I was okay because my car, they recognised it and they saw it parked somewhere unusual. Um, that let me know that the guards have my back, that they know that there's a long history, that they're aware of it. So there are things that the guards do in more recent times or where there is a particularly caring local guard um, willing to go just a little bit above and beyond. And to this day, the mind boggles at the the fractured system of wherever you live is where you have to make your statement and you have to start off from scratch in the area that you live in that station with that guard. If somebody could pull together all the statements I've made over the years of all the assaults, of all the threats in all the different jurisdictions, if somebody joined the dots, I really do believe that that man would be behind bars and it wouldn't be my responsibility to put him there. You know, it wouldn't be my responsibility to hold on to the evidence, to hold on to the timelines, to hold on to all of the, the stories and make sure that I tell them all over and over again um, to be told that I can only deal with it on an incident by incident basis. I know we have coercive control now. We've had our first conviction. But by the time the violence comes to awareness, there could be decades of abuse behind it. Well, the police have a huge role to play in it because they can challenge, I suppose, the grooming that these men use. They use it on their partners initially and then they use it on the community subsequently. And the police have a, a strength to say, I'm sorry, but you can't do that to anybody anymore.
Getting this wrong has all kinds of consequences. At one end of the scale, proper police interaction could prevent deaths. An average of 10 women are violently killed every year in Ireland. But there are other consequences too for those involved. If the initial response of the Gardaí is neither supportive nor protective, that can be hugely traumatising. I've been with women in the Garda stations. I've gone to senior Gardaí myself at times on behalf of women. And the constant response is, oh, Don, we can't do anything about that. And there's nothing worse to hear having taken the courage to go into a Garda station to be told, I'm sorry, we can't do anything about that. When there actually is a lot of things can be done, even without a court order, but the Gardaí would prefer not to get involved. And what does that do to women? Oh, it has a hugely negative impact. And the word is out. Don't go anywhere near the guards. They won't help you. And that is a crime really in itself. That's the attitude among my clients. About, well, I'd say less than 10. I was going to say about five, but maybe a little more. Uh, Less than 10% of my clients ever spoke to a guard. And kids, of course, are not immune to it. Obviously, the consequences for my, you know, for my child over the years, all of these cumulative incidences of Garda presence in his life, whether it's because to make handover safe or whether it's because he's in fear himself. And what he's learning is they can't protect him either. They can't protect his mother. There's nothing they can do. Women's Aid offer a listening service to those experiencing domestic violence or their supporters through their 24-hour helpline 1800 341 900. They have an interpretation service and they also have an app detailed on their website that can connect victims to services. It needs to be discreet and covert, so I'm not going to name it here, but you can read about it online. Safe Ireland provides information on 38 domestic abuse services all across Ireland and can help you locate services and shelters. Men's Aid provide information and advice to men experiencing domestic abuse in Ireland. Their national helpline is on 01 554 3811. The Dublin Rape Crisis Centre has a national 24-hour helpline on 1800 778888. And if you need privacy to contact any of these services, Boots Pharmacies now offer a safe space for people experiencing domestic violence and you can read more about that online. Mary is a remarkable woman who has found ways not only to survive but to thrive in a context that must at times have felt unbearable. Her courage in speaking to us, driven by her commitment to helping others, cannot be underestimated. Thank you so much Mary and Don. Thanks to my producers, Tony Groves and Brian Agrus ahead. And thanks to our listeners. This is the end of season two, but we'll be back in the new year with more episodes that we're already recording. To support this work, please subscribe at patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack.